This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, this is Morgan. We had some production issues with the podcast today. So we are actually going to be putting a rerun into the feed today. It's called The Fire This Time, How Climate Change Shifts Our Understanding of Suffering. And sadly, I think this podcast is actually super relevant given that there are now a bunch of fires happening once again on the West Coast. I think you'll really find this episode informative about what's going on over there and also thought-provoking, especially for thinking about how we should process these disasters. Ted and I will be back with a fresh episode next week and we will see you all then. Thanks for everyone for listening to the show. Unless you've actually been in an area where you can look out your window and see the view with your own eyes. By now you've caught images of an orange sky coming from the West Coast. The past week, hundreds of miles of California, Oregon, Washington, and neighboring states have been covered in smoky air as forest fires rage, driving thousands of people from their homes. 17 people have died in these historically catastrophic fires, at least one of which was allegedly started intentionally and another by an exploding gender reveal device. In Oregon, prison officials weighed moving incarcerated people into facilities where they could be potentially exposed to and contract COVID-19. We wanted to discuss what is driving these cataclysmic fire seasons and how Christians in particular should respond, or even if there is a Christian way to respond to these natural disasters. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Ted, these images are super visceral, so I definitely would love to get your gut check on how you are processing all this information and images and stories coming out of the West Coast. You know, I don't have a strong gut check on this this week, other than I've really been processing this largely as editorial director of Christianity Today, saying like, you know, this is a huge deal. It's big. And yet, you know, every year we do a lot of disaster coverage, whether it's uh, hurricanes and tornadoes. We did a podcast, you know, last year on uh, fires in Australia. What is the Christian response? You know, what are some of the Christian ways to talk about some of these things that isn't just all of creation groans and a disaster is kind of mysterious? You know, we have friends over the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. I'm always amazed at the different ways in which they can talk about some of these things. I hate sounding like, you know, the editor looking for a curious angle, but in this one, I'm like, man, it's terrible. I've got friends, you know, directly affected by this, but. For me, it's a lot of been scratching my beard saying, you know, what can we say that would be helpful to CT readers? Uh, even as I look at those orange skies and some of those terrible videos and say, that looks really bad. But, you know, I have a little bit of disaster fatigue, a little bit, you know, in some ways of saying like, this is terrible. Those terrible images of tornadoes and other disasters, they're hard to process. And you kind of wonder, is this the way the world is? Or is this something that we Christians should be doing more about? You know, that's my take. How about you, Morgan? 
I really relate to what you're saying (laughs) in that as a journalist, I think sometimes you take different positions on natural disasters than other folks would because you're trying to figure out how to say something meaningful, especially for those of us who are more in the idea and thought-driven journalism camp where we're not just going to post pictures that have really intense and uh, apocalyptic reactions that kind of come with them. On a more human level slash journalism level, I think I am asking myself in some ways with these fires and as I've seen images come out is, is there something different happening here? You know, is this just another terrible hellish month of fire season on the West Coast that we've seen in the past couple of years? Or is something going to change? Is there a breaking point here? Does it matter that it happened during COVID? Are Christians, I don't know, maybe Christians in some way going to be radicalized in some way by this fire? We talked about radicalization last week. But, you know, oftentimes there's these these very like intense moments, right, that end up changing and shaping communities long term. And given what we know right now about climate change and so forth, just the intensity and severity of what's happening, it does make me wonder if this might be some sort of seminal natural disaster and how we understand natural disasters and talk about them. I would just say, too, that the pandemic really does add an extra layer to me and how I'm processing all of this. I was just telling Paige that I had a friend who recently moved from Chicago to Oregon about four weeks ago, and he moved to Oregon precisely because he wanted to be outside. And (laughs) that is not possible right now, given the quality of the air and all the smoke in it. So there is another layer of just kind of cruelty that is being doled out that I don't think would necessarily be as felt as strongly in other years. I don't know. How, you, how are you doing on scale here? I mean, that's that's for me part of the issue is I've got friends sharing images from all over. And in fact, even I had a conversation with my in-laws in Tucson yesterday and they're like, yeah, we're really having a hard time with the fires. And we're like, I know there were fires, you know, there's often fires in the Tucson mountains. And they're like, oh no, it's the California fires that's just, you know, coming this way and we have to keep our windows closed. I'm like, oh man, you know, the scale of the fires all through California and Oregon and Washington, but affecting then the rest of the country. It's really something. We should get into it because we have someone who is not just an expert in this area, but is also a lot of ways in the middle of it. Paige Perry is our guest today. She is Assistant Professor of Biology and Science Outreach Director at George Fox University, which is there in Newburgh, Oregon, just southwest of Portland. She is a quantitative forest ecologist, knows a lot about ecology and helping people to understand a lot of what's going on here. So we're, we're thrilled that she is trained in helping us to think Christianly about some of this stuff. So thanks. Welcome, Paige. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Paige, maybe you can actually tell us a little bit about what the current situation on the West Coast is. Yeah, absolutely. So I can give you kind of a a rundown of the fires, particularly the fires that are close to my area, which have been some of the most widely publicized ones, as well as kind of what we're dealing with right now. But there's a, a variety of large and small fires just peppered around the state. And the concern with a lot of these is that they've spread into a lot of relatively densely populated areas. And they were spread primarily by some really high winds last week that carried some warm, dry air from the east over to the west side of the Cascade Mountains. Our region right now west of the Cascades is particularly dry. Some of our biggest fires are located in western Oregon and central Washington, and probably the most publicized of those has been the fire complex that results or has resulted from the merging of three different fires that are fairly close to where I'm at here in Newburgh. And those are the Lion's Head Fire, which originated a number of weeks ago on the east slope of the Cascades, the Beachy Creek Fire, which is just to the west of Salem, Oregon, and the Riverside Fire, which is a little bit north of that. So those were three separate fires 
fires. And recently they've merged into one fire and collectively have burned just under 500,000 acres. So it's a pretty massive fire at this point. A lot of that has been within the Willamette National Forest, but it's spread over to communities on the west slope of the Cascades. And the current numbers suggest that around a million acres have burned in Oregon alone. And so, of course, that doesn't account for the many acres that have burned in Washington and in California as well. In Oregon, over 40,000 people are currently evacuated from their homes, and there are a number of additional people on evacuation status that are kind of ready to go if they need to leave. Most of our big fires as of today are only being reported at zero to five percent contained. So it looks like we're kind of in this for all and there's there's a lot of work to be done. The estimates right now are that the fires are really only going to be extinguished when we reach the rainy season, which we're not quite sure when that's going to come. But this week has given us a little bit of optimism. It's been a lot cooler than last week. There's moisture, more humid air. And so there's optimism that that will allow the firefighters to make some more progress on containment. And on some of the small fires, they've made some pretty remarkable progress on containment within the last couple of days. As far as the air quality, that's the other thing that has been talked about pretty widely. And our air quality is extremely poor right now. So it's recommended that everybody stay inside. So I think everybody's feeling a little antsy and a little cooped up and ready to go outside. We're having the sunrise for about a week now. (laughs) Those orange skies, at least in Western Oregon, have largely subsided and have just been replaced by a gray, hazy smoke that's settled kind of at these low elevations elevation depressions like we're experiencing here in Newburgh. There's a lot of ash on a lot of surfaces and yeah, not a lot of not so pleasant things in the air to breathe in. But the fire reports are getting more optimistic. Evacuation orders and warnings are in place, but we're hopeful that things will improve throughout the week. So as someone who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, I personally don't remember fire season on the West Coast and I think that may have to do partially with some of my just obliviousness to parts of the state that weren't, I don't know, as populated. It does seem to me since moving away 12 years ago that things have gotten worse. Is that fair to say that? Yeah, it is. Our data shows the broader set of data that forest ecologists and fire ecologists have collected certainly shows that things have gotten worse over time. And they've been increasing for some time now, but we are experiencing not only more frequent fires than would have been historically typical for this region, but the fires that are burning are burning much larger than would have been typical. So they're also making more major news headlines and having a larger impact on people who live in these regions than our more historic fires would have. They're getting worse. They're bigger. And they're hitting more populous regions. Is that is that because of new building? You know, like there's more people who haven't have built in areas that have more are more prone to fire. You know, obviously we're gonna get into climate change and some of that stuff, but I'm just curious about the population center aspect of things. What's behind some of that? Is that is that new building or is that the fires are in different places than these to me? Both is really the answer. The fires are burning much larger than historic fires would have in this region, so they inevitably just burn further and come into contact with more largely populated areas. This side of the Cascades, the west slope of the Cascades, would have been historically characterized by much longer fire return intervals. So now that we're seeing more frequent fires, that also means that those fires are more likely to occur in places where people are living. But the other side of that is that there's more people living in what we call the wildland-urban interface 
space. And that's these maybe not densely populated regions, but these areas kind of on the edge of cities and towns that have sprawled closer to national forest land or into more forested regions. And so there's a denser population in in the wildland urban interface across the Western U.S. than there was, say, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. So when fires do burn in those regions, those fires are coming into contact with people's private property and, and people's homes. You know, we hear about this time every year about number of fires, especially out west. Is there anything unique about this year where there seems to be so many and so up and down the west coast? I mean, is there is, is has it been a particularly dry year this year? What's separating this year from previous years? It has been a particularly dry year. So we've been experiencing, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, a drought that's extended for some years now. But this year has, has been a very, very dry summer. Now, the interesting thing about our region here on the western slope of the Cascades and in Oregon and Washington is we're characterized by a Mediterranean climate. And Mediterranean Mediterranean climates come with dry summers. So our region is adapted to pretty dry months in July and August, pretty dry conditions that characterize those months. Um, But the dry period is getting drier than it used to be, and it's also getting longer. And so that allows vegetation to dry out much more than it would if the drought period was was relatively short. And that sets the conditions up pretty well for, for big fires. Wow. So during your time living on the West Coast page, what have you noticed in the ways that people have talked about those fires and how they have changed, how the presence of these fires has affected how people kind of relate to them and see them? You know, similar to what you mentioned, I grew up on the West Coast and fire season, I don't remember really being a thing when I was young either. And really the first time that I experienced fire season was when I moved to Wyoming as a graduate student. In comparing it to that longer term trend, I certainly don't remember a lot of discussion of fires or even recognition of fires 10, 20 years ago around here. In 2017, we had a pretty bad fire year as well. And that was the first year that I remember where we had really smoky conditions in this region, in the Willamette Valley and in Western Oregon and Western Washington. And that was a surprise to a lot of people that really caught a lot of people off guard because those weren't conditions that we were used to. That was the year that we had a large fire in the Columbia River Gorge, which is an area that's very near and dear to many people that live in this region because it's really beautiful and has a lot of great recreation opportunities. And that fire was ignited intentionally, well, accidentally, but it was ignited by an individual, by a young man. So that really drew, I think, a pretty upset reaction from local residents. And I think the view at that time was still that, you know, this region doesn't burn, this region shouldn't burn. And when it burns, (laughs) it's the result of individual people making really irresponsible decisions. I think that I'm getting a sense as these fires increase and as they become more abundant, that there's more acceptance that this is perhaps part of the system that we live in at point in time. I think maybe there's a bit of a loss of optimism about what the future looks like here, particularly this summer, as people keep hearing that these fires aren't going to go away. This is not going to be a one-time thing. So I think the conversation has shifted some from feeling like, you know, this is just an anomaly and a a really wild thing we have to deal with to now trying to figure out how we move forward, recognizing that this may characterize our region in coming years as well. You know, you hear about, you know, well, you know, the the fires come through and it creates this opportunity for new growth and all these kinds of things. Does the effect that these fires are having after they're extinguished. So, you know, you have these fires that go out. Is what happens next changing or is that similar to how it would have been, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago? I know we're managing forests differently, but I'm wondering is, you know, that period 
after a large-scale fire like these. Is that changing? It absolutely is. And it's, it's changing in some significant ways. And, and perhaps to understand that, it's important to have a little bit of context for what hi- fire has historically looked like in this area. In this side of the Cascades, our forests are adapted to a high severity fire regime, which means that fires occur relatively infrequently. But when they do occur, they're very severe fires. They burn up into the canopy. And so forests here can be resilient to these large standard placing fires under the right conditions. And disturbances like fire initiate what we call an ecology succession. And succession really entails the successive change in species composition and ecosystem structure that occurs after a disturbance, whether that disturbance is a windstorm or a fire or something else. So species like Douglas fir, which is the dominant tree species in our forests here west of the Cascades, they need an open canopy with ample light to regenerate. So in one sense, fire can be really positive for these forests because it's what they're adapted to over these long intervals. And they need the canopy to open for some of our key species and some of our most dominant species to regenerate. And over time, these seedlings mature into trees and they'll create a shaded, climatically buffered environment below their canopies that allow other more shade tolerant and less drought tolerant species to move into the stand. So the fundamental idea there is that ecosystems are are meant to change over time. We know that ecosystems are not stable and we know that they're resilient to some degree of change. But the fires that we're currently seeing, the really large fires, do present some major challenges for ecosystem recovery because they're occurring within a backdrop of conditions to which our forests are not well adapted. So one of the biggest things is that these large fires result in large distances between the burned areas that are at the core of the fire and seed sources, so trees in adjacent unburned stands. And for new seedlings to establish, obviously seeds need to disperse in from these unburned stands. But if the unburned stands are very far from the center of the fire, it can be very difficult for a seed to disperse that far. So then we end up essentially with this game of leapfrog where a seed has to disperse somewhere into the burned region from an unburned stand. Enough seeds have to disperse to establish a stand. Over many years, that stand will grow up and produce its own seeds and disperse those seeds further into the core of the burn, which is a really, really long process. And as we're experiencing a more frequent fires, that also means that there's a greater risk that a fire will come along and burn one of those stands down before they have the opportunity to disperse all the way into the center of the burn. So getting seeds to burned areas is becoming more challenging within this context of these really large fires But the other challenge is that seedlings are struggling in some cases to actually establish following fires because our droughts are getting hotter and drier and longer. So for tree seedlings establishing west of the Cascades, their greatest challenge is usually surviving their first summer. And drought conditions are really, really stressful for them. And that mostly relates to the fact that seedlings are small, they have shallow root systems, and they have limited water storage capacity. And they're really close to the ground, so they experience pretty high temperatures. The hotter and drier it gets, the harder it is for seedlings that are establishing in burned regions to actually survive their first summer and to regenerate the forest. And we've already seen this challenge played out following some fires, most notably in the Klamath Mountains of southwestern Oregon and northern California. There have been a couple studies that have come out of there showing that in these large burns and with summers with pretty severe drought conditions, seedlings just aren't able to survive. So what this suggests is that there's the potential for kind of a fundamental shift in some of these areas where forests may not be able to persist in the long term if conditions continue to be characterized by increasing severity and length of drought conditions in tandem with these really large, severe fires. So what are we left with instead? Grassland, desert, burned over area with with not a whole lot? What kinds of ecosystems are 
replacing that area if, if these seedlings aren't able to, to grow. Yeah, so we would expect that if indeed forests can't regenerate in some of these areas, they'd be replaced by shrubland or grassland. And so when we study different fire regimes around the world, and particularly around North America, the fire regime, how frequently that fire burns and how severe it burns, really determines the dominant type of vegetation on the landscape. And so in regions where we have very frequent fires and perhaps very large fires, it's more common to find those landscapes filled with shrubs and with grasses. And the reason for that is that shrubs and grasses have pretty fast life cycles. So they can grow pretty fast, they can reproduce pretty fast, which means they can complete their life cycle between fires if the fires are occurring more frequently. And they are also able to colonize burned landscapes much more quickly and disperse into burned landscapes much more quickly because they produce seed more or less every year from the time that they're very young. So trees typically have to reach maturity, which can be 60 plus years for a variety of species before they can actually produce seeds that can disperse into a burned region. So shrubs and grasses do a lot better in conditions that are characterized by really frequent and large fires. You have spent so many years of your life in the forest thinking about forests, and I would love to hear a little bit about how your faith in the forest have informed each other. As a younger person, I was motivated to go into ecology primarily because of my faith. I've often found that I'm able to connect with God best in natural places. And I also recognize that a lot of our natural places are changing and they're changing in some significant ways because of the ways that humans interact with them. So I was pretty motivated to want to find some solutions to those sorts of problems and to understand those problems, which led me to a career in research and teaching where I get the ability to research questions that contribute to answering some of the, the questions related to the problems that we're facing ecologically, but then also to share some of those answers with my students and to try and inspire them to care about these things as well. So I think it's a love of nature that kind of has motivated what I do that's very much related to my faith and how I connect with God. But I also think that spending time in the forest has allowed me to understand God and learn quite a bit about him that I haven't learned from any other context. So I found some pretty amazing lessons in the forest and in the way that God's constructed the forest and things that reflect a lot of his nature, uh, the cooperation of ecosystems, how all components work together, and how there's this community with these really, really diverse parts that support one another and contribute to the functioning of the community. Those are just a few examples of some of the many lessons that really parallel what I've learned in my faith journey as well, and that have been informed by my time in the forest. <laughs> the tree cannot say to the moss, I have no need of you. That, that kind of inner working like the body of Christ, essentially. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And not, and not just, you know, the, the body of Christ, but how believers work in the broader world that we live in as well. But certainly, you know, e ecology is really all about the interactions between organisms and between organisms and their environment. And so to study ecology is really to understand really intricate relationships and to recognize that every living thing is highly dependent on many other living things. And every single change to a system has impacts on every component of that system. So it's informed my faith in that sense is it's forced me to think really carefully about how my choices impact my brothers and sisters around the world and how I can make choices that share the love of God through the actions that I take. So not just in the area of metaphor, but actually we are, we are all dependent on each other. Yes, exactly. Would you say then, Paige, that the forest fires have challenged your faith? 
I was thinking about this question earlier. What really came to mind was a conversation that I had with one of my students a couple of years ago in my ecology class. And one of my students came to my office for a chat after we'd wrapped up some material about disturbances. And we'd been talking a lot about fire. And she was having a lot of trouble seeing God in the way that ecosystems function. And that really threw me off guard because to me, it's always been uh, such a significant place where I deepen my faith, my study of ecosystems and my time in the forest. But from what she'd taken away from the conversations in the course, she recognized that death and destruction are a natural part of ecosystems and that death and destruction under particular conditions are necessary for ecosystems to be healthy. And to her, that seemed really inconsistent with what she knew of God, that he would structure the world in a way that requires death and destruction for, for new things to be born and for ecosystems to operate in a healthy way. You know, I had a pretty quick response to her thoughts. I offered what I thought at the time was a really compelling answer. And I spoke about how God's work since the fall has been to redeem crea uh, creation, how his redemptive work is mirrored in the way the ecosystems function, how death ushers in new life, just as in Christ, we move from death to life and, and all of these things that seemed like really compelling answers. And, you know, I tried to motivate her and get her to care deeply about the ecology and what it can teach her about God and thought that it was, it was all good. But these fires in particular have kind of made me realize that there's just a much more complex story at play and that maybe there isn't such a pat answer. So in that sense, they've been slightly challenging to my faith, just as I watch people I know that have been so deeply affected by these fires. You know, we've had a lot of stories of, of tragedy this week in our own community. We've known people who have been very deeply affected by these fires. We've read news articles about people who have died in these fires in really, really tragic ways. And I've just been left praying quite a lot for God's mercy and feeling relatively powerless to stop the tragedies and to help the people affected by them. So while I, I know that the collective sins and choices of humanity, you know, contribute to the suffering that we experience in the world and have heard all of the, the Pat Sunday School answers for that sort of thing, I think when you're faced with the reality of these sorts of things, these situations that just cause people so much suffering, those answers just don't always seem good enough. And you're just left asking the same questions that it seems like Christians have been asking forever. And that's why doesn't God intervene when he sees people that he loves suffering in such significant ways. So I think these situations have brought me back to that question in a new way. You know, I can certainly offer all sorts of answers, but when you actually watch people who are suffering so much, it causes you to, to answer those questions again. And, and to really, I feel like I'm just still grappling for the answer. Do you think, I'm curious about the ways in which wrestling with that with a forest fire might be different than wrestling with that, the tornado or a hurricane. There's a really interesting book out called Tornado God that kind of looks at the different ways in which people have thought about tornadoes and their relationship with God. And, you know, I took a class back in back in my old undergrad college days that was on natural disasters where we looked at a whole lot of different natural disasters and how there, there's some similarities in the theodicy that emerges from some of this. But I'm curious if you think that forest fires bring any kind of special pressure or questions to some of those issues that other disasters don't? There's probably many thoughts in many diverse directions that contribute to my answer. But one thing that comes to mind as I hear that question is the fact that we know so much about what's contributing to the change in the fire regime in this area. And we know that humans contribute to it. So in, in my head, that makes my response to these very different and the questions that I ask very different than maybe a natural disaster that's that's truly natural, that may not be 
influenced at all by human action. And so within this context of feeling like we have so little control over the situations that are unfolding here on the West Coast, feeling like we're just victims of these fires ravaging, there's a part of me that also recognizes that our collective actions and choices have in some ways likely contributed to the situation that we've found ourselves in, which I think leaves us to wrestle with it in a very different way. Yeah, I I think that's honestly something that I've been trying to think through a lot as well is, yeah, for those of us that are just thinking about climate change and our collective actions contributing to the conditions that allow these fires to be that intense, how we even kind of see ourselves differently and the extent to which, you know, I think a lot of times I would call people who have experienced natural disasters, obviously see them as victims in some ways, but also you know, what is the way that we appropriately talk about the potential responsibility that we have in this? I don't know. Have you done some wrestling around that too, Paige? Yeah, I have. And I think, you know, that that question is perhaps one that I wrestle with less as an ecologist. You know, I was motivated to that work because I I think I recognize the personal responsibility that I have in some of the challenges that we're facing with regard to our climate and environmental changes right now. But I've certainly wrestled with how to communicate those things to people who maybe don't recognize them or who maybe don't care to recognize them and how to motivate people to wrestle themselves with those things so that we can make some broader progress on these issues. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. We talk a a lot on this show about the ways in which the church can really stand up and, you know, the church be the church and really make a difference when it comes to living out their faith. You know, how might you encourage the church to really act in a way that is consistent with, you know, the teachings of Jesus and so forth, obviously, as these fires are raging right now, but 
after they're extinguished and before fire season starts again next year? I'll maybe offer a few immediate things and maybe offer some longer term approaches as well. But I think the, the most immediate thing that anybody can do is to pray. And I'd ask that anybody please continue to pray for Oregon and Washington and California and every other community that is experiencing these fires. You know, I, as well as probably many listeners are entirely convinced that God hears the prayers of his people and that this is our most powerful response to tragedy. And I know I've been brought to my knees many times this week as I just see more and more news of people being injured, people's homes being consumed in these fires and really feeling like Prayer is the only reasonable response to it at that, this particular point in time. For people who are, are not anywhere near here, I recently saw on social media that a friend's church in Tennessee had organized a prayer service specifically to pray for the fires here in Oregon. And that was really encouraging to me, recognizing that you know the prayers of people all around the world are being sent, are being raised on behalf of, of us in this situation right now and people who are so directly impacted by it. So not only just praying, but being able to offer encouragement either through social media or anything else to people here who are displaced from their homes, who are worried about their homes being consumed in the fire, who are dealing with a whole lot on their plates right now as they deal with COVID as well as these fires. I think just offering encouragement, it really boosts people's spirits to know that this is something that matters to people around the country and people around the world. And it, it, it isn't just us that's left to wrestle with this. But on a broader scale and perhaps a longer term, I, I, I would really encourage people within the church to consider how they might contribute to the environmental conditions that have encouraged fires like these ones through personal actions and consumption choices. And a lot of that comes down to anthropogenic climate change and the role that we play in moving climate towards conditions that favor longer and hotter and drier summer droughts and that facilitate the spread of these, these really large fires. So there's certainly a human element to that. And the first and most important thing that we all can do is perhaps to take personal responsibility and to recognize that. But I think that alone requires everybody considering that perhaps climate change doesn't necessarily have to be a partisan or political issue. And I think so often we look at all these issues through the lens of, of what we hear in society and kind of the, the common narrative in society. And I'd encourage everybody to just take a step back from the societal perspective and look at these issues and challenges in a fresh way, primarily through the lens of our faith. And my hope is that if enough people do that, we'll see that taking action on environmental challenges and taking action on climate change is a way that we can extend the love of God to our neighbors all around the world by creating a better world with safer conditions for everybody to live in and doing our part to do that. So of course, there's many, many practical things that individual people can do to take climate action, to reduce their carbon footprint. And there's many great resources on those types of things. But I think a, a really important first step is admitting our personal responsibility, however large or small it may be, and committing to doing what we can to try and mitigate climate change as much as possible. In, a, in this kind of a situation with these forest fires, I assume that the poor are disproportionately affected. I mean, a lot of the images we see are people fleeing some, some fairly nice homes up in the, up in the mountains. But I also understand that uh, whether you're talking about the effects of asthma with the smoke or whether you're talking about people without insurance, what are some of the ways in which the poor may be uh, disproportionately be affected by forest fires? 
Yeah, you know, before we started the show, Morgan and I were chatting a little bit about the air conditions. And um, one of the things that I mentioned is that many people in Western Oregon and Washington don't have air conditioning. And our temperatures were projected to be very, very warm this week. And typically, people with more money have air conditioning. People with less are less likely to have air conditioning here. And that's been a major concern and a really a really tangible example of this sort of thing with the air quality that we're currently experiencing. Because when you don't have air conditioning, what do you do to cool your house? You open it up at night, let all the fresh air come through, let the cool air come in, and then you close it up during the day. But right now, we all need to keep our houses closed up all day. Fortunately, we've had the temperatures grow a little bit cooler, but that's just one example where certainly dealing with these sorts of things is much harder for people with less access to resources. People who are evacuating homes and evacuating properties. There have been evacuation centers set up, but most people are preferring to go and stay with friends and family. But if you happen to be in a poor socioeconomic group and your friends happen to be in a poor socioeconomic group and your family, then it may be more challenging to find a comfortable place to stay, a place where there's a bed for you and room for you. And we don't know how long these evacuations will last. It's been about a week already for many of them. So people are potentially being displaced for relatively long periods of time. And, you know, staying in a, in a school gymnasium crowded in with a lot of other people, particularly during COVID conditions, is not the ideal scenario for most people. So I think there are probably a variety of ways, even in just dealing with the effects of the fires, dealing with getting houses back in condition, in habitable condition, properties back to the level that they were is going to be more challenging for people with less resource. Yeah, and I think at the top of the show, I had also mentioned just the challenges for people that are currently in prison <laughs> and how they're kind of in a very extremely challenging position with trying to get them into a place where they're not going to be exposed to a lot of this really unhealthy air and also not going to be exposed to COVID. So that seems to be a big thing as well. Yeah, you know, one other thing that I would mention along those lines is in the Willamette Valley, we're primarily a crop growing region. So this is a grape harvest season. This is harvest season for a lot of our crops. And one story that's been coming out in our local news is that many of our farm workers, many of whom are migrant workers and are relatively poor, are working in these smoky conditions outside doing harvest. And it's not safe, healthy for them, but they don't have an option, right? They're going to, to lose their employment, which they need if they decide that they're not showing up to work because they're concerned about their health. So that's one particular group that is certainly marginalized in many ways right now. They're feeling the full brunt of the effects of these fires, perhaps more strongly than some other groups. As we wrap this conversation, page. I did kind of want to get your reaction to how people around the world have been responding to these images that have come out from the West Coast and that I mentioned at the top of the show. I've seen a lot of people use a lot of apocalyptic language to describe <laughs> the color of the sky and how surreal those images look. And obviously, pictures of the fires themselves can feel just really larger than life in some ways. And I think sometimes we default to apocalyptic language to talking about this. You had mentioned that you know, for a long time, you had kind of seen fires as part of, yeah, part of, in many ways, healing and doing the work that the forest was supposed to do. How do you react when you see people use this type of language? And what do you think it kind of suggests about how we humans understand and process these, I guess we would call them natural disasters in this instance? 
Yeah, you know, I think I have kind of kind of two separate responses, one that's perhaps motivated from the science side of me and one that's perhaps motivated more by my faith. And, you know, the science side of me, I feel like we, we get this reaction to fires in general, right? People see fires burning and think that fires are the problem. And so there's a part of me that wants to ensure that the public is educated on natural fire regimes in a lot of areas and that in order for ecosystems to stay healthy in most ecosystems, fires are a natural component of those ecosystems. But fires in those natural systems occur within the context of a particular set of conditions that makes that system resilient to those disturbances. And what we're experiencing now is less resilience because we've changed the context for those disturbances so much. But I think that's that would be my first response is recognizing that fire itself isn't always such a problem. And the goal shouldn't be to uh, suppress every fire, which is something that we've attempted to do in this country for quite a while now. But more focusing on the conditions within which those fires burn will allow us to have some healthy fire management. But I suppose the other piece of that is that when I hear apocalyptic language, particularly maybe from other Christians, it seems to often be used in an attempt to absolve humans from any responsibility for the problem referring to. And particularly, you know, I hear this a lot related to environmental problems and climate change and those sorts of things. And I think it's perhaps a way for us to express the severity of the current situation while at the same time allowing ourselves to feel as though we don't need to do much to mitigate the causes of it. And I even hear this in my classes with my students when we talk about climate change. You know, there's comments like, well, God is going to bring it into the world anyway. So so why bother to do anything? What use are my efforts? And so I worry that sometimes that apocalyptic line language really veils that sort of thinking, where if we can suggest that this is just an uncontrolled end to the world, we don't have to respond in any particular way. We're not responsible in any particular way. And I do mention this critique cautiously. I want to be really careful in my critique right now, because I will say that people throughout this region, as well as throughout the world, including members and leaders of regional churches, have been incredibly generous and hospitable and caring towards the many people that have been affected by these fires and have responded in a way that I think really does tangibly express God's love to their neighbors. But I do wish that Christians could also recognize that our interactions with the environment also give us an opportunity to love or not to love our neighbors, and that the actions that we choose to take or not with regard to climate change do contribute or alleviate to, well, they contribute to or they can alleviate the degree of suffering in our world. And I think that this is just another example of that. So I would be cautious in, you know, suggesting that that apocalyptic language really reflects the situation, because certainly some of this results from human choices and and human actions. And we do need to take responsibility for the pieces of this that we are responsible for. Yeah, definitely. Fire can also be... (laughs) can be judgment for our uh, human actions sometimes it, at the the apocalyptic apocalypse as revealing aspects it does seem like there is this kind of thing where you see these these images i mean there are this there are this kind of like sky is on fire the orange the, the flames and you do kind of that does take you aback and make you go wow there there is something fire is part of, can be part of this natural process but there is something about massive fire that just instantly kind of makes you think about judgment and destruction. And at least historically, these kinds of natural disasters and other things, while the God's role in them it can be mysterious, they've been a time for reflection and, and people asking, uh, you know, how can I get right with God? I hope that there's people reflecting on that, not just personally, but socially as well. How can I, how can I get right with God and in my behaviors uh, with the environment and, and loving my neighbor uh, in a number of my choices, politically, socially, 
other engagement wise and doing what God has asked me to do. So I'm hoping it's apocalyptic in that sense as well. Well, Paige and also Ted, I appreciated your last point. Paige, thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us and giving me some really good context for understanding exactly what's happening right now on the West Coast. For people who have thoughts, opinions, rebuttals, you know, you name it, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And you know that we appreciate hearing from all of you listeners out there. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak. And it's an opportunity for us to share what we've been hearing from our listeners. So first of all, thank you everyone who has written in and shared your thoughts and feelings and commentary with us over the past couple of weeks. We are going to be playing a little bit of catch up here as we read some letters that are responding to a number of episodes that we've done this year. So I'm going to start right now with an email from William Wallace, and this is his note. I've listened to CT podcasts for quite a while and have enjoyed many of the episodes. However, the bias displayed on current political issues has become so harsh and glaring that, for me, it distracts from the conversation and overall message. A few examples. An episode supporting social justice in the wake of the George Floyd incident. Nowhere in this episode was there any condemnation of the Black Lives Matter organization, which is explicitly anti-Christian and anti-American. An episode decrying police brutality without any context. No statistics showing how minimal this is in the numbers of interactions, nor any indication of how the overwhelming majority of cops are good and heroic work many of them do, not the pressures they face daily on each interaction. In fact, the overall gist of the episode seemed to be taking white evangelicals to task for supporting the police. An opportunity missed here was to correct first an ongoing bad reporting from the original incidents. The straw that broke the camel's back for me was the second episode in a month discussing Jerry Falwell Jr.'s fall from grace as a leader of Liberty University. The topic, board accountability, was interesting but overshadowed by the fact that it seems obvious that both hosts vehemently dislike Falwell and that this dislike is rooted in his vocal support for President Trump. Why else have two episodes so close together except to cast shade on Falwell for his, quote, bad politics? In short, the CT podcast has become an echo chamber for carrying and discussing the, quote, narrative rather than understanding all the facts and giving light to other sides of particular stories. I genuinely try to understand both sides of issues and so get news and opinions from many sources. Ultimately, CT has become another voice in this chorus of leftist progressives, which demeans and ridicules those with opposing views. This I can do without, so it's goodbye from me. All right. First of all, thank you, William, for listening to so many episodes of Quick to Listen and for, yeah, I appreciate that you did not just turn us off the first time that you disagreed with us. Ted, I think you had some thoughts too. Yeah. You know, I do try to avoid this thing of you know, Twitter being an assignment editor, as, as someone uh, put it uh, in regards to, I believe it was the New York Times. We do avoid that in Christianity today, but I think for quick to listen, it is an area that I we do kind of pay more attention to social media conversations and to what kind of current conversations are. And so it is, it is the case that a lot of times we are looking at what are people talking about right now? And then going, you know, beyond those hashtags and hot takes, as we say every week, to look deeper at some of the Christian aspects. We did talk about the Jerry Falwell thing twice. We did really wrestle with, should we come back to this so quickly? We'll be publishing an article soon on the CT site, looking again at some of the reasons we publish bad news, why we cover scandal. 
similar thing as, you know, you don't publish, you publish the, the news about the plane crash. You don't publish the news about the thousands of, of planes that landed safely. There's a point to be taken there about not wanting to overemphasize scandal. But I do think that part of Christianity Today's work is to look at things that have gone wrong and, and not just things that are going right. I had a boss that used to talk about Christianity Today as a, as a mirror that we would hold up to ourselves. And the reason you hold up a mirror to see what you look like is you want to see if there's anything <laughs> wrong that you need to take care of. You know, that's that's certainly been the case with the Falwell and the board engagement. And, and uh, believe me, politics did not have a whole lot to do with that one. On the other two, both race-related, you know, Morgan, we've talked a lot about this at Christianity Today, and I, I feel like one of the big tragedies of our moment right now is the equation of racial justice issues with kind of a progressive politics. And that's something that I see happening both on the left and right to make that necessary, to make that equation obvious. I, I'm really pushing for CT not to make that mistake. In fact, our guests on those podcasts are actually very conservative. And, and I appreciate this new book that's out on the ways in which evangelicals have talked about law and order over the years. And I think that's really important for us to engage with as biblicist Christians. We're going to keep talking about racial justice. And one of the reasons that we're going to keep talking about racial justice is for the same reason that we talked a lot about abortion in the 70s and 80s. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, we are with racial justice the way we were in the 60s on abortion. That we, It's something that a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals said this is important, but it's something that we really saw another Christian community caring more about. So, well, they, they've got that and, you know, we'll let them handle that. In the case of abortion, it was evangelical Protestants looked at Catholics and said, well, it's more of a Catholic issue. And I think on racial justice, it's there a lot of evangelicals have ceded that to mainline Protestants and to the black church. And I think, no, in the same way that we need to. Back in the 50s, and 60s, and 70s, we needed to keep saying, no, this is a this is a huge issue. We need to talk about this. We need to, I think we need to keep saying, no, this is a huge issue. We need to talk about this. There will be people who try to then take that, weaponize it, and politicize it, and all that kind of thing, just in the same way we saw that happen with abortion. Both of those issues are massively, massively important to me and massively important to Christianity today. And we're gonna keep we're gonna keep talking about them on I would also listen. say that we would want to keep talking about it too, because we want the church to be there on those issues and Absolutely. the conversation. <laughs> right. And if we're feeling frustrated by non-Christians seizing control, for lack of a better word, of these conversations or folks that do not love Jesus and have Christ-centered at the ethic of why they want to engage in something like racial justice, I would argue that it's only going to get worse if folks that have our convictions are not the ones engaging on these issues. So I know that Ted, you and I work really hard to bring in people to talk about these things that really deeply love Jesus and really love justice because we're not interested in kind of furthering the sense that there is this dichotomy there at all. That is at least our goal. <laughs> and obviously, I think that we can expect to keep hearing from people about who we're bringing on and what type of insights they're having. I'm going to read another letter now from a listener named Aaron Stout, who was writing in response to an episode from a couple weeks ago called, Can Christians Justify the Violence on America's Streets? He said, hey guys, I really enjoyed this episode. The guest, who is a columnist for us, her name is Bonnie Christian, the guest was on point and the conversation was very centered and considered. Even before it took a very welcome libertarian turn, I was impressed with the coverage. This was a very important conversation for a U.S. church that is increasingly divided. Thanks for that, Aaron. This next letter is from Darren Curtis. Morgan and Ted, I listened to the Liberty Finally Reacted to Jerry Falwell's Antics podcast. The professor you interviewed had a lot of insight about Christian colleges in general, but you missed a lot of the ground truth in the discussion. 
I am a Liberty alum, a 1991 to 1995, and I went back to Liberty to teach from 2004 to 2011. I left for another Baptist college where I'm currently teaching. Jerry Jr. is not LU. As a management professor who teaches leadership courses, I recognize that the institution is identified with the leader, but Jerry Jr. is an aberration, not the norm for the institution. Last night, our former campus pastor, who also left in 2011, conducted an all-night prayer vigil for LU on Facebook. This is the heart of liberty. This is an accurate reflection of liberty. Junior's behavior was not. You did hit on something correct in your podcast when you talked about a lack of accountability. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate that. Yeah, I also appreciate it because we specifically asked for folks connected to liberty. Yes, to tell us what's going on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, appreciate that. And then finally, from Dr. Carol Bourne. Let me begin by telling you how much I have enjoyed your weekly podcast for the last several years. In a world where communication is becoming a lost art and the willingness to hold differing ideas and tension has succumbed to hostile partisanism, I'm refreshed by your thoughtful questions and conversations each week. And the fact that some issues aren't closed or resolved by the end of the podcast, that's okay. As we are approaching the gift-giving season, I'm wondering if you could post a list of Mr. Olson's favorite games. I notice the transcripts don't include the precious moments when he mentions them, and I usually listen to the podcast while running, so I don't have a pen handy to write them down. Finally, thank you for following God's leading on your life and for being faithful to excel in the tasks put before you. I don't know if many people have told you, but you are making an impact in our world. God bless you. Well, God bless you, Carol. Thank you for that very encouraging letter. I take your suggestion very seriously. I would like to put together a list of some of my favorite games. In fact, I'm working on an article about Christians and board gaming. I hope to have with that some recommended games, but I can probably throw together a list of quick-to-listen recommendations. That might be a fun thing to do. If any quick-to-listen listeners would like to try to play an online board game at some stage, hit me up. That might be a fun thing to do. Maybe we can play a group game at some stage. That's a really cool idea, Ted. I like that one a lot. I just wanted to also thank Carol for her very warm and thoughtful letter, but I mostly appreciated the fact that she said the fact that some issues aren't closed or resolved by the end of the podcast, and she's okay with that. I think that's kind of the heart of where I usually want to leave people at the end of the show with basically something to chew on and to not really feel like we've absolved them of their responsibility to think by listening to this podcast, but instead given them more to process and digest and mull over the next couple days until the next episode comes back. All right. Well, you guys know where to find us. And thanks for chiming in to tell us this. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments when Ted offers up board games and everyone else shares what has brought them joy. That's not a board game. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's just be real. That's what it's turned into, Ted. It is Ted's board game moment. Yeah, I was going to talk about my puppy again today, but I I will do board games. Last night, family played a game called For Sale. It is a very fast, very quick game where you are buying and selling real estate. It's fast, but it's a great little game of guessing what other people are going to bid on on for property and then trying to sell those properties in round two. It only takes about 20 minutes. Fantastic game. A little hard to find sometimes, but if you're looking for a game that plays in about 15, 20 minutes, for sale is a good one. But also, Morgan, I've enjoyed the fact that the temperature has uh, dropped off 20 degrees. I've been working outside with my dog a lot more. It's, it's been kind of nice just letting her run around and not have to worry about this puppy peeing on the floor all the time. She can just pee wherever she wants while she's out in the backyard. I can edit to my heart's desire. All right. So what brings me joy is that the question that we are 
asking me. Something I'm hoping is going to bring me joy is that I'm reading the Hunger Games prequel right oh now. Oh my goodness. How do you, how will you like it so far? Is it sparking joy? Uh, not yet. <laughs> it was sparking joy for me is like, I stayed up all night reading this book. I am reading it because it's a Hunger Games book, but I am not reading it with the same amount of verve as I've tore through the other three books. Yeah, I want to say what is actually bringing me joy, and that is e-divvies. So for people who do not know what divvy is, it is the bike share program that is in Chicago. And an e-divvy is an electric bike. They are included in people's annual membership, depending on where you live in Chicago. But I happen to live in the part of Chicago that makes free for me to use them as long as the trip originates in my area or ends in my area. Let me just tell you, I am probably going to die on one of these because... (laughs) I am going so fast with so much, like, I feel like a car right now. Like, I'm like, I can't die on a Divi. You can go so fast because normally Divi bikes are extremely heavy. Right. So it's hard to go fast on them intentionally by design. But these ones, you start pedaling and you just like shoot off. You don't feel hills anymore and you don't feel like the wind, which is can be very annoying, especially on a Divi. But yeah, I went on something that was normally like, I would say like a 50 minute, 55 minute bike ride the other day on an EDV and it was like, I don't know, 35 or less minutes. It was crazy. <laughs> Be careful, Morgan. We need you on this podcast. Thank you. I am scared. Someone did die near my house on an EDV on Sunday. So I'm sad that that has already, there's only been one fatality, but they're really fun. The best. Are so they going to, are they going to send out some sort of you know download that will make them go slower? <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows? I do think I should probably wear a helmet. I don't really wear oh, a Morgan. helmet when I'm on a Divi bike. Well, partially because the Divi bikes are so sturdy. Yeah. But yes, I do think for an e-Divi. Anyway. All right. Everybody everybody, send in your letters to Morgan telling her to wear a dang helmet. So. I wear a helmet on my bike for the record, just so that we're all clear. Okay. All right. People can find me. You can also harass me, I guess, to do this the right thing on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Paige, over to you. Yeah, well, I have a 15-month-old daughter, so she brings me joy in a million ways every day. Um, But one of the things that comes to mind this week is she really loves to sing. She's still working on all of her words and her language, so her singing is usually just this kind of high-pitched, sing-songy jibber-jabber, which is cute enough as it is. But ever since she was an infant, one of her favorite songs has been Baby Beluga, which is <laughs> familiar to many people. And just this week, she has gotten to the point where we can, she can sing the chorus of Baby Beluga, but she's not quite able to say the full word, so it's Baby Uga. And she just prances around the house happily singing Baby Uga. And in fact, the other day, I was putting her down for a nap, and she really didn't want to sleep. So while I'm sitting in the other room waiting for her to go to sleep in her crib. I listened to about 35 minutes of little sing-songy baby <laughs> in the other room and it was very sweet. So that's my precious moment for the week. That's a great one. Where can people find you, Paige, outside of here? Yeah. So I have a, a website for my lab. It's perrylab, P-A-R-R-Y, lab, L-A-B.com. And there's some more information about my research and my students and the sort of stuff that I do there. And then you can also find some information about me on the George Fox website at georgefox.edu if you just search for Paige Perry. Awesome. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. 
We really appreciate, as we've said many times, all the letters that you send to us. Again, send them to us at podcast at christianneedtoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And yes, if you would also like to, it helps us as well. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. There's also where you can find the podcast and we're available wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you all next week. Bye. Thank you.